Hi, it's Jesse here. This episode is a re-release of a previously recorded episode. We thought this was too good to let it sit with the sound quality that we got on our first production, so we've remastered this one, and hopefully it can be one for the ages. So please enjoy and share with your friends. Tori and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Lydia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And welcome to another episode of Five Things Nursing. And today we are welcoming Anthony Carr, who's the clinical nurse consultant in the consultation and liaison team here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. And he's going to talk to us about personality disorders. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you. I'm really excited about this because I think it's an area that I personally have despite reading, had really shallow application knowledge in it and see people at their lowest points usually um, from an ICU background. So really keen to get into this one. Before we do, we'd love to hear a little bit about your nursing journey and, and your origin story into nursing, Anthony. Okay, well, that began uh, in the 1980s uh, in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, I trained uh, at a time uh, when care was provided in institutions. So that's um, um, where I started, and and, and at that time, uh, mental health nursing, which at that time was called psychiatric nursing, um, was a three-year course, and it stood alone as a specialty, really. So, um, part of that in the 1980s was a time where you know the term deinstitutionalization, um, which applies to the closing of those. Uh, large institution. So I, I moved out and worked in the community. And then in the late 80s, I moved to Australia, initially to Tasmania, where I worked in acute mental health units and in community mental health. And then 23 years ago, I moved to Brisbane. Initially, I worked in the adolescent mental health unit here at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And for the last 14 to 15 years, I've been working in consultation liaison psychiatry. Wow. So you've actually been in mental health your whole career. Yes, that's right. So interesting to have, um, I imagine it's been so interesting to watch times from institutionalization all the way to now such strong consumer, lived experience kind of advocacy. That's right. I've seen a lot of changes from those institutional days for the better, uh, mostly. And, uh, you know, these days people talk a lot about mental health rather than mental illness, which is good, really, moving away from the stigma that was previously associated with, with mm-hmm. mental health. And there's a lot happening in that space now, which is which is important, yeah. Great. Well, like Jesse, I feel like this is an area, you know, it's my greatest area of weakness in practice is really understanding personality disorders. So I was really thrilled to see that your number one point is what does the term personality disorder actually mean? Yeah, my thoughts about this were that initially that it, it, it's an umbrella term 
and I'd encourage the listeners to see it uh, as, as such. Think about it in, in, in a sense similar to dementia. So when somebody would say to you, this patient has dementia, then you need to think, well, which type of dementia did they have? Did they have vascular dementia or, or, or Alzheimer's type dementia or frontotemporal dementia, for example? Because there are, in fact, 10 different types of personality disorder. And, uh, and so, we, we, so the term personality disorder itself could be seen as an umbrella term. You need to think uh, which, which personality disorder we're talking about. Um, because if it, when, when terms get used like that, and, and commonly, I think it, it colors the opinions that people have about that based on previous experience of other, of other people that they've met who have that, who have that diagnosis. So it's important to think about that to start with. I also think it's important uh, to think about, firstly, like, like what, what constitutes a personality uh, before we talk about what constitutes a personality disorder. I've got a very simple definition. Um, that, well, it goes like this. Look, um, it's enduring, which means to say it's over the lifespan. It, 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 it includes the way we feel, think, and behave in, in certain situations and circumstances. So that's, that's our personality. And of course, there's a lot of factors that go into contributing to forming a personality. And perhaps in point two, we'll talk more about that for a particular personality disorder. But that being a definition of personality, um, let's look at a definition of a personality disorder. So it's got s similar features in the sense that it's enduring. Um, it, it's, it's fixed and inflexible. It usually manifests itself in late adolescence or early adulthood, and it involves certain ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that's specific to that person. Now, usually, that is considered to be outside of what would be the norm for that person in terms of their cultural background, and it causes distress and impairment. I'm really curious about this because, uh, you know, I thought that was so interesting that you start, if we're going to talk about a personality disorder, be very clear what you think personality is in the first instance. And I guess, you know, um, one of the um, challenges, I guess, of having a personality disorder, it kind of, for me, I always worry that people brand that that person is in control of it, like different to bipolar, different to uh, schizophrenia, that because it has the term personality in it, you know, can that person actually change the way that they are? But I love that you start with, like, this is inflexible. It's not like somebody can wish themselves or will themselves to be different. Is that correct? Um, yes, that is correct, yes. But it doesn't mean that there's not treatment available, and we will talk a bit later on about that in one of the other points. But in terms of, of the 10 different personality disorders that I mentioned, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, each one has its own set of features. There are commonalities across uh, all of the personality disorders, like ways of communicating or perhaps um, ways of, 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 of managing distress, um, perhaps substance use uh, it can, be, it can be common. And it's, it, it, it is also fairly common for people to have other comorbid psychiatric disorders as well, like depression and anxiety or substance use disorders or post-traumatic stress disorder or even eating disorders or disordered eating. But it's guided by there's a, you know, a manual, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And in there, uh, that sets out the criteria for 
for the diagnosis of, of a personality disorder. So fixed features that are, that are consistent and demonstrated over the lifespan. But it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean when we say they're fixed, that they can't change, you know, specific types of therapy that, that are uh, available. And what are the most common, you know, so there's 10, are there ones that are more common in our community than others or is it kind of really broad reaching? Um, look, I think there are some that are certainly identified as more common. Um, uh, antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, emotionally unstable personality disorder, which is sometimes referred to as borderline personality disorder. Um, Avoidant uh, personality disorder, dependent personality disorder are probably the more common Yeah, we see. So interesting. So I'm really curious to dig you know, deeper into this. So your number two is that really today we're going to focus on emotionally unstable personality disorder. And is this what used to be called borderline personality? Um, it's still called that. Uh, right. Borderline personality disorder arises in the manual that, that I mentioned, the DSM, whereas emotionally unstable personality disorder comes from ICD. Uh, listeners would be familiar with ICD. Yeah. Um, I guess some, some people would think that it probably, EUPD uh, probably closer represents what happens here because one of the core features is struggling to manage emotional states. And so having emotional in the term, uh, probably makes it easier for people to understand that. Yeah. So what, what you're saying is, is that for people who have emotionally unstable personality disorder or EUPD is that they can't regulate their emotions perhaps like you or I could. They, they struggle to do that, yeah. So let's, let's just explore that a little bit further if that's okay. I want to delve into the DSM and look at the specific criteria for the diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder. And one of the primary uh, criteria is to struggle with emotions and managing emotions. Uh, impulsivity is another common, uh, another common feature. An unstable sense of, of themselves, or in, in other words, their self-esteem. Um, substance use, uh, alcohol, things like that um, is common. Um, also, um, Often a sense of emptiness for the person uh, is, is commonplace. Uh, intense interpersonal relationships. Uh, fear of abandonment and um, this in impulsivity can sometimes manifest itself in, 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 in suicidal thoughts or deliberate self-harm thoughts. So, so self-harm behavior is, is, is a common feature of this uh, disorder as well. Now it's probably worthwhile looking at perhaps how this might have come to pass it for, this, for, for the person. Um, there's a lot of complex issues that go in to make a, a personality. But, um, and usually, as we said earlier on, it's, uh, it's established in late adolescence or early adulthood. And, and, and the typical journey is that, you know, uh, we grow in a nurturing environment and we learn a set of core beliefs and we have our own likes and dislikes and by the time we leave adolescence we've got our friendship group sorted out and we see the world from the viewpoint of growing up in a safe and secure environment. For people who develop this disorder, their journey is probably a little bit different to that. One of the core 
needs of a child is, is to feel safe and secure and, and to form an attachment with an adult that allows them to feel safe and go out and explore the world from there. Often this is missing for people who have a, border, a borderline personality disorder. But there's a long way from, from childhood to, to late adolescence or early adulthood. And factors that can influence this in the meantime are things like being exposed to trauma, growing up uh, in, in, in a situation like where there might be substance abuse or domestic violence or homelessness, or having a parent who might have a personality disorder or a mental illness where they're only intermittently able to attend to the needs of the child. So they learn a different, they've got a different picture by the time they've, they've reached their late adolescence and adulthood where they see the world through different, uh, different eyes than, than, than perhaps you or I might do. So. So unlike other kind of mental health um, disorders or conditions, which are often due to a biochemistry problem in the brain, are you saying that most people with personality disorders have probably had a, you know, a trauma, uh, something disruptive either from early childhood or something, you know, really tragic or awful has happened to them either protracted over the course of their formative years or in in the early stages of adolescence, is that correct? That that is the typical situation that we encounter. But I've been reading about some research in, in genetics that suggests that personality traits can be handed down across three generations. So that's a factor that comes into play as well. It's also worth noting that there is another type of personality disorder that's called organic personality disorder. So whilst a personality is set down in, in adolescence or early adulthood, um, there may be some individuals who perhaps as a result of, a, of, of, a, of a, a, a traumatic brain injury or some other physical cause, uh, have a change in the personality later on. But usually a personality, as we said earlier on, is fixed and enduring over time. Right. In your description of emotionally unstable personality disorder, I couldn't help but think how awful it must be. You know, you're talking about an emptiness, kind of a, a pervasive despair where you feel out of control, perhaps feel disconnected, uh, you're almost really sensitive to everything and so you react to things in a way that's quite intense. You said that the relationships are intense, that people are either, I'm guessing, deeply and passionately in love after a couple of days or, you know, vehemently hate, detest, can't stand and um, I guess with my own experience, having worked with people with personality disorders, that those things can be made up within a, you know, the decision can be made in a couple of minutes, can't it? Like, I hate you, or actually, I like you. I want you to look after me from every time I come to hospital, you're my person. <laughs> That's right. It's something that we commonly come across. And uh, I, I think in one of the points to come, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But uh, a lot of this, at the end of the day, comes down to our communication skills. And I, I would ask the listeners to try, and, try and, and think from an empathetic point of view. That's to say, try and put your, put your feet in the shoes of a person who has this disorder. From the moment they come into the hospital and think about what that means for them, given that hospitals are very stressful environments. And one of the, the core features here is managing emotional states, including anxiety. And as we, you know, we're... It's a very controlling environment as well. And people with this disorder, for example, have possibly had experience of being controlled and it, and it doesn't sit very well with them. And so some of, the, some of the behaviors you might see, the question you have to ask yourself, I think, is 
why is this person behaving in this manner at this time? And if, if you do that, you're probably in a better place to try and help the person rather than get involved in all of that dynamic that goes on about you're my favorite or I hate you. or The whole world um, must feel quite volatile, I imagine, for, for someone with this disorder. That's right, it does, yeah. And, and you know, it's probably fair to say that if, that they have they've got thin thin skin, yeah. And the, the sense of self and the sense of self esteem is, is brittle. And for you and I, if something you know happens to us and we're able to stand back from it, take some time, have a look at it. Being anxious coming in and doing a podcast, for example, <laughs> putting in the groundwork and having time to manage that anxiety as much as you can. For people with emotionally uh, unstable borderline or, or personality disorder they go from zero to a hundred like like so so we have to be very in tune with 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 the triggers that 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 can kind of manifest themselves during hospital admissions yeah all right so anthony your third point as guidelines for the management of emotionally unstable personality disorder or eupd could you talk us through this because i actually think everywhere i go often you know this is something that the bedside nurse and the wards really struggle with. That's correct. And I travel around a lot of the hospital as well, and I get a lot of questions about this also. Look, I'm going to focus on, on three of the principal guidelines for the management of EUPD. And the first of those is, is hospital admissions and how long hospital admissions should be. Now, we know from the literature and our experience that prolonged admissions are not only helpful, but they can cause harm, iatrogenic harm for people with this diagnosis. So they might be managing in the community, let's say, and, and there might be a self-harm event that brings them into hospital. Think about somebody with a background of trauma. Hospital is a safe place. Having said that, hospital is also a triggering place. And um, really what we need to do is, is, to, is to allow them to gather their strengths as soon as possible and go back out uh, into the community. Prolonging admissions uh, comes with anxiety about actually when the day comes to leave hospital. And we talked about fear of abandonment as being a core feature of this diagnosis. And that's what happens for individuals. So they feel safe in hospital. You get validated in hospital because we care. And so it, it, we're attending to that need for the person as well. But prolonging that it actually comes at a risk of increased risk of harming themselves in order to stay in hospital. So the idea is that admissions, and, and of course people are admitted also to the mental health units, but the idea is that we keep that as brief as possible and tend to work around the idea of three days, a three-day admission to allow for crisis management, for whatever crisis was contributing to their situation before presenting to hospital can be resolved and managed so they can go safely back out into the community. But the second part of this is that the treatment of, of, of uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder is, is, is what's called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a community-based treatment and it requires a commitment to attending appointments for anything up to 12 months. And this is a treatment where people are thought core skills in order to manage emotional dysregulation um, dis, well, distra distress tolerance first, emotional dysregulation, and improving their ability with interpersonal relationships. Um, point number two is 
how we communicate with, with people who have this diagnosis. And the guidelines would say that we communicate in a very calm manner, be respectful, non-judgmental, and consistent over time. And that fits with the values of the organization that, that we work for. And finally, um, discharge from hospital can evoke you know, emotional responses for people that are difficult, as we've just as we just as we just discussed. But um, so it needs to be managed with input from from the individual to to minimise the, the risk of, of 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 that being a distressing situation for them. The point two within the guidelines you made around the communication um, approaches. I'm just wondering about elaborating on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to do so. Um, the first thing I would do if I'm if if, if somebody is, is has presented in crisis like this and are becoming emotionally dysregulated, and I'm talking to them, I, w- I will ask permission to sit down. Actually, because I'm sitting down at the same level and we've got eye contact here. If I'm standing up, it's a risk that they would interpret that from the point of view of their past history of people controlling them and talking down to them rather than talking to them. So that's, and, 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 and it displays a genuine sense of, I'm here to listen, I've got time, I'm sitting down. Plus, our body language is always very important as well. And if you're standing up, you tend to fidget and move around, maybe put your hands in your pockets. For if you're sitting down, you're relaxed. And so people with emotionally uh, unstable personality disorder uh, are very good at reading your body language. Remember that they've come from this background of being invalidated. And so they're scanning the environment to see if you're genuine. They've had to do that in order to survive in their world. And so it's very important that we take care of how we respond to people. The other issue that arises in terms of communication is they have a lot of problems establishing trust, and we can understand that as well based on their experiences. And you know, there's a power differential here as well. We've got all of the information. Hospitals are very controlling environments. And so it's important to, to, to give information. But it's very important to be honest and not make promises that you can't keep. Because if you don't, if you do and you don't keep them, well, it, it's, a, it's an invalidating experience for the person. So um, I think the other thing about uh, communication that's important is, is listening, actually hearing the story, you know, and, and, and taking time to do that. And, you know, this is interesting because when I walk around the hospital, you meet nurses, and, and, and this is a very busy hospital and everybody's very busy. Um, and I think that sometimes we tend to think about things like, oh, this patient has all of these cares that's required, catheter care, does it drain, does IV fluids, and, and it's, of course that's busy. But this is a different type of busy you know, you're physically, sometimes people are physically tired after looking after the patient I've just described, but emotionally tired. The things that we need to be careful of with this group is this concept of splitting. Now, let me just uh, describe what that means. This is actually an unconscious mechanism where the patient is trying to establish some control over the situation. Sometimes people use the word manipulative. I would, I would ask them to avoid using that word because this is an unconscious mechanism that's at place here. But this is where they will say to you, I like you, but I don't like the nurse who was on last night because uh, X, Y, Z. And it's important not to get drawn into that uh, type of dynamic. And the way to do that, really, it, it, it's the cohesiveness of a team that determines that, really. Um, if you think about hospitals, of course, it's different teams. We've got medical teams, we've got allied health, we've got nursing teams, we've got admin and so there's lots of opportunities to split 
but but we can have some control over that by sitting down and talking about this is where the problem is. And it's not helpful for the patient to allow that to, to continue. So we need to set boundaries around that. But we need to spend time at handover talking about this as well. I think other things about communication that in terms of amongst the nursing groups that are important, and this is something that I've heard from patients, is that you know, at, at handover time, sometimes there's information spoken about, particularly if it's a bedside handover, that that is distressing for the patient. So if you've got a low sense of self-esteem and people are talking about your behaviors, it, 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 it's not a helpful thing to do. And finally, communication in, 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 in written form, what we write in the chart is very important. So I always encourage nurses to think about if they've had a difficult shift looking after somebody with this diagnosis, that just stop for a moment before you start to write because there's a risk that what you write will reflect your feelings about the person that you've been looking after for the last eight hours. And that, the term we use for that in psychiatry is counter-transference. And this is where people could use very powerful words that could be you know, um, distressing for patients if they were ever to read their medical notes. But also, what you write influences the person coming after you. So there's a chance that they would look at that and say, oh, I'm going to avoid looking after that person today. And, and you know, avoiding the situation can only result in an escalation in, in challenging behaviours. I feel like I've had a bit of an aha moment about so many things that you've said. So the first thing that really struck me was that people with personality disorders, specifically emotionally unstable personality disorders, have a fear of abandonment. And so this whole thing that is, they get into the ward and they're disruptive. I don't want to be here. I hate it here. Like I need to get out, blah, 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 blah. Then. When it comes to discharge, they can do things to delay the discharge where people are like, hang on, wasn't this person six hours ago demanding to leave and now that we're saying actually you probably could leave, doesn't want to. And it is that whole, you know, feeling of despair, feeling abandoned, looking for someone to, to you know, be attentive, to pay attention, to be nurturing and finding that sweet spot, I guess, uh, around, around those issues. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. But one of the things we have to be aware of is that sometimes people will actually say the opposite of what they really mean. Yeah. And, and that's when the listening skills come in and sit down and just, you know, gently probe and find out what it, what it is that's, that's behind what's happening. It gets back to that question. Is it, why is this person behaving in this manner at this time, I think? And if you, if you work from that point of view, I think, you, you know, you can get to where we need to get to. But um, yeah. So with regards to the splitting, one of the things that I often encourage, and I want you to say this is a good thing or not, um, is to say, look, we work as a team. You know, it's, it's natural that you're going to like some people more than others, but we're all working together to get you well, you know, to try and show cohesiveness, to avoid that kind of splitting behavior escalating amongst a ward. Yes, I think that's a, I think that's a very good point. And, um, you know, that's, that in itself is setting a boundary as well and, and being honest. It's also being honest, you know. There's a risk of people sort of getting drawn into a, what we call a rescuer fantasy and thinking, well, look, I understand the problem here. I'm the only person who can attend to the, to the per person's needs at the moment. And, you know, um, being consistent, talking amongst team members uh, minimizes the risk of that happening. But, yeah, being, being honest and, and, and truthful about the fact that 
Yes, we're part of a team and everybody in this team is an important part of, of, of your treatment and everybody in this team needs to know everything about what's happening for you in order that we can provide you with the best treatment. That's what we want to do. We're going to get to our number four point, which is what are the helpful strategies to employ to assist a patient who has, you know, an emotionally unstable personality disorder while they're with us in hospital? Yes. Well, I'm going to repeat myself here because I think it's worth, it's worth doing it. I'll go back to that point that I made that why is this person presenting in this manner at this time? Um, you're on the way to, to, to being helpful. Look, one of the uh, other strategies that we can think about is what we refer to as, as AMPS, which stands for Acute Presentation Management Plans. Um, these are often developed by clinicians in the community with input from the patient. Uh, regarding management in hospital and um, a very important source of information like if you're looking after a patient in, in any area information is, is, is in terms of the, of, the, of the background and the history is very important and here is where you can find some of this information so these amps will provide you with information on a mental health diagnosis and history it will provide you with some of the history in terms of what, what, what the background to that person's diagnosis is, which is important to know in terms of things like also triggers. You know, what are common triggers for individuals? For example, if the amp was to say to you, oh, contact with a particular person, let's say a family member, leads to emotional dysregulation. Well, here you go. I think you're watching, aren't you? And you think if the person comes to visit, there's a potential that afterwards there'll be some triggers there. It will tell us if the patient is engaged in DBT or if they've previously completed DBT. And so what are some of their kind of strategies that they've already sort of learned in terms of managing emotional distress? Uh, for example, and this is something that any nurse can do really, is, is, is a simple grounding technique of using our five senses uh, at times that somebody is emotionally distressed. So that, that involves looking around and taking notice of, of colors and textures around you and, and, the, and your immediate environment. It involves just uh, things like smelling, you know. Uh, perhaps you could get a, a little piece of fruit, a uh, grape or a raisin or something like that, and smell it. Um, people use aromatherapy as well as candles and things like that. I'm not too sure about the rules around candles <laughs> in hospital. But getting back to, to, uh, to, the, to the piece of fruit, you can feel that as well. You can feel, this is one of our other senses, you can feel the texture of that. You can also eat it and concentrate on, 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 the, on the pleasant taste. So that's like SOS really, you know, the person is emotionally distressed and the idea is to get them back to some sense of equilibrium. But, but these amps will provide us on, on information of, of the strategies that a person has and we can remind them of that in hospital. These amps also provide us with very important information as to who the clinician is that's involved in their care in the community and, and, and how to contact them. And generally speaking, it also gives us information on what, whilst it's helpful, it also tells us about situations that are not helpful as well. So that's strategy number one. Check if there's an amp. Now, people may not know how to find an amp. So if you go on Viewer, and I'll call it the home page, the open page of a patient's history on Viewer, and you... Scroll along the uh, tabs towards the top of the page, you'll see uh, one for care plans. And so um, click on there and you may find that there's an amp that's been developed and revised for the person that you're looking after. 
I have never known that. So that is would have would have been helpful in many many situations. Yeah. So hopefully that uh, that's a great spark for a lot of the listeners too. Can I just go back to one of your points? So if if you um, admit a patient and maybe they've been in a car accident, you know, it's nothing related to their personality disorder. It, they've come in medically. You know, you see that actually they also have a personality disorder. While they're doing well, if you have an opportunity, you know, the importance of sitting down and saying, you know, I hope it's okay to have a discussion with you. I see that you, you know, you have uh, an emotionally unstable personality disorder, you have a personality disorder, however you phrase it. Um, What would be really helpful for you, for us to do while you're in hospital? You know, what would be unhelpful? Uh, Because, you know, for some people being, you know, having an awareness that for particularly some females, you know, having a male nurse can be really triggering or someone, you know, touching their skin without permission or, you know, raising a voice or being in a a four-bed bay with someone who has dementia, for instance, and is constantly yelling out could be very triggering. These are such important things that could prevent the person you know, being triggered, becoming dysregulated or becoming a risk to themselves or others, couldn't it? Yes, very true. And again, this comes down to our, our communication skills, really. And, and I guess there might be some people, though, that would, would not want to be reminded of this disorder yeah, when they're in tricky. hospital because uh, they're doing okay. And, yep. you know, and there's no need to bring it up because then you might bring it into their consciousness and, and raise issues for them that weren't present before we did that. But General general idea is, look, in terms of when we speak to people with emotionally unstable personalities disorder, the you know, important factors to think about are things like, you know, validating. So younger nurses often say to me when I go around the hospital, um, look, I don't know what to say, or I'm afraid I'm going to say something that will make the situation worse. Yeah. This is a common situation that I encounter. But the validation is not, it's not, anything scientific really if you were to say, if somebody is to tell you something dreadful that's happened to them and you just simply could say something like i'm very sorry to hear that that's happened to you that's validation if you want to set a boundary with somebody you could say look i can't do something about what's happened to you in the past but i'm here to help now is there anything i can do to help you at the moment to make it easier for you being in hospital and that's kind of letting them know that we're not going to go talking about that now we're talking about about the present, you know, expressing expressing empathy. I can see that you're feeling very bad at the moment. Is there anything I can do to help you? Mm. You know, um, or even you know, engaging in problem solving. Look, you came to the hospital to get help. Let, I'm here to try and help you. Let us both see what we can do to make that to make that happen to make it easier. Great strategies. Um. We're going to move now, if it's okay, to your number five point. And I think you've already alluded to this, and we certainly see it, that sometimes when we have a patient with a personality disorder, particularly if they have a prolonged stay on the ward, uh, that it can become quite emotionally exhausting for the team uh, as people have different skill levels or you know the amount of uh, challenges that can occur with a patient. So your number five is, how do you look after yourself when you're caring for someone who's got really challenging behaviours? Okay, you know, when I thought about this one first, 
I was narrowing it down to challenging behaviours, and then I thought, N- N- you know what? It's a lot more than this, really, because hospitals are stressful environments. So, and just one part of that might be looking after somebody with a challenging behaviour. So, I would say that we need to, you know, what, what we often hear people say: when I leave work, I leave work behind me, and and that's probably true for a lot of people. There are certain situations where 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 things will still sit with us, but we never hear people think think about. When I come to work, you know, what do I do to be ready to come to work? You know, because we work in stressful environments. Um, we know what trauma happens and we know what, what happens to us with chronic stress. It affects, our, it affects us in a physical way, a cognitive way, a, a, an emotional way and a behavioral way. So we need to be looking after ourselves. When I came to work this morning, I had my podcast. Uh, I was in podcast. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's podcasts. So when I get here, um, um, because, you know, for some people, they've got worries outside of ho- hospital, don't they? For some staff, you might have had an argument with somebody before you came to work, or you might be worried about the next bill or whatever it, it might be. So we need to be looking after ourselves emotionally. And if you think about our autonomic nervous system, you know, we're safe, we're, 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 we're practicing, you know, we're practicing well, we're looking after people. And then something challenging happens, and we move into this fight or flight situation, isn't it, where, you know, we have adrenaline and, and cortisol released and, and that's necessary and, and, and we manage the situation that's in front of us and then we, we step back to feeling safe again. So that's what we would call being mobilized. Um, there is another situation that can arise when we're, when we're, when we're stressed and busy uh, is, is what we would call immobilized and that's where we're in that constant state of alertness and, 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 and worrying that things are going to go wrong and, you know, we're going to have bad outcomes here today and things like that. So we need to, firstly, be aware of that and attend to that. And ways we can attend to that, for example, would be sometimes we have to set boundaries with ourselves and say, no, you know, if our, work, if our workload is too much in a respectful way, we can say, look, I can't manage this at the moment. We have to talk to our... Our, our inner critic again, you know, nurses are very compassionate people and, you know, there's only, if we, if we think about a compassionate cup and it's full and we're, and we're using it up, we need to be keeping that full as well. So we need to be less critical with ourselves, you know. Probably worth mentioning some of these physical things that can happen to us if we're in this situation chronically, like some people might have fatigue or they might, you know, they might have pain, they might have gastrointestinal issues and things like that. From a cognitive perspective, sometimes become very indecisive, you know, can't make decisions and they freeze. And so we're, we're, not, we're not being helpful to people when, when things like that happen. And, and, and we tend to sort of take, become catastrophizing things. We're expecting that things are going to go badly for us as well. From a mood perspective, there's often irritability or sadness or anxiety. Um, from a behavioral perspective, well, there's avoidance, you know, I'm not going to go to work today, or I'm not going to look after that person, or, or blaming others for, for, for our problems, or, you know, using drugs and alcohol and things like this. So we need to be very aware of these situations and do things, I guess, individually, some of them I've mentioned, but we also sometimes have to do things as a, as a team, you know, yeah. and, and what we know is that, is that certain disciplines graduate to their own cohort, you know, and, and, and spending time, well, recognizing that, that we work in stressful situations is important. Spending time at handover to, 
to explore this is is important as well. Bit of debriefing. Bit of debriefing, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 finally, I would say, you know, supervision is something that's embedded in 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 mental health uh, services. I'm not sure what happens. You might be able to shed some light on that throughout other sort of. So some teams do kind of debrief, you know, to learn what what happened today, to share that experience, because due to confidentiality as well as uh, just the general public not having an awareness of these things, it can be quite confronting. But being able to share those experiences, learn from them so that the next shift goes in more informed, uh, hopefully more compassionate, more prepared for what's going to happen. Um, some of the teams around the hospital do have supervision or opportunities, we call it compassionate conversations, once a month to just talk about what, you know, what's been really challenging and what's been really rewarding. And we also, of course, have I've forgotten peer responders as well, don't we? Which yeah. is important to support for, for staff as well. So. Beautiful. So I've got the very difficult, I've been so engrossed today in what you've had to say that I feel like I'm going to botch these, uh, the summary. So if I'm, if I'm saying the wrong thing, by all means, Anthony, please uh, dive in. So the first thing is, what is the term personality disorder? What does it mean? And you really encourage us to reflect, first of all, what do we understand about what is personality so that we have a real uh, concept, I guess, about what could be a personality disorder. But you encouraged us to think of it as a real umbrella term. Uh, it, it, I'm going to use it, could be like a cancer. There's a, a so many different forms of cancer and it's under, really important to understand what type of personality disorder someone might have. But some consistent features was around emotional dysregulation. Um, that it often can come with other comorbidities like anxiety and depression and alcohol and substance abuse. Uh, it's really about having a poor sense of self that's quite fragile, uh, I think is the term that you used. Um, and so our number two was understanding, because specifically today we've talked about emotionally unstable personality disorder, which is sometimes referred to as a borderline personality disorder. Um, and the things that really stuck out for me was these intense relationships that people can build quite rapidly, um, that people can be easily um, become emotionally dysregulated or feel out of control, um, that they can get very distressed very quickly, um, and that often they've got this really poor sense of self um, and that these this cluster of um, personality disorders often comes because maybe there's been poor attachments or a trauma or something that has happened during the formative years that has affected the construct of their personality. The third one was guidelines for the management of personality disorders. And one of the first things you said was, you know, about really communication, forming, a, a, I guess, a relationship that feels respectful to the other person. So make sure you're sitting down, eye contact, you're not doing anything that could trigger those kind of feelings of, out of feeling out of control or power dynamics, um, validating the person and also setting some realistic boundaries, not making promises that you can't keep. The fourth one was helpful strategies to employ to assist with patients who might have a personality disorder in hospital. The big tip is check if this person actually has an existing plan. Something that's really going to give you guidelines about what works for this person, what doesn't, who should or shouldn't visit that can be disruptive, um, what this person knows about themselves or their uh, healthcare professional in the community that has really given you a, a guidance, I guess, uh, as to how to interact best with this person. 
to be really aware of splitting and to be also conscious when we're talking about splitting that this is an unconscious behavior for this person. They're not sitting there going, ha, 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 this is how I'm going to destroy this team. Uh, This is really part of their personality disorder. And that one of the big things is to say, we work as a team. We'll discuss that as a team. Uh, It's normal that you might like people differently, but we'll look after you as a team uh, to give that strong messaging. Number five, you gave some beautiful points uh, around the real challenges that can come just with nursing, never alone nursing people who might have some, you know, really challenging or unusual behaviors. And I, I think the first thing I loved was step into work, deliberately step in. How do you prepare for work? Are you rested? Have you nourished your body? Are you doing movement yourself? Have you got good connections and, and people who care about you? And then once you're here, um, to really be mindful about setting boundaries about what you are able to do and what you aren't. You know, I often say to people, these people, sometimes our patients were too harmed, uh, too ill or too injured before they got to us. And our job is to do the best that we can, but we're unlikely to solve all of their problems uh, in a short admission. I think this has been a really fantastic podcast. And I know that you're anxious about coming in speaking to us. I think you've done a wonderful job. So thank you very much for talking to us on a really interesting and important subject. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to Five Things.